high. I'll bring to you the second reading uh, this morning from Psalm 15. Uh, please follow along as I read. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow men, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Uh, thanks, Amanda. And it's good to be back here at Surrey Hills. Uh, Ruth and I often reflect on the really wonderful year we had in 2018, so uh, thank you for having us back. Um, uh, there is an outline of my sermon in your notes, I believe, um, but it would be good to just keep your Bibles open as we work through the passage together. Um, I'm going to pray, and then let's look together at Psalm 15. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Please use your word now to convict us, to inspire and encourage us, and to change us today. May we hear it and respond, it, uh, respond uh, to it with a deeper faith in Christ and a longing to live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yep, we're live. Well, we all long to feel safe and secure in life. And I think many of us in Australia go looking for that security in a whole bunch of different places, but I think one particular big place we go looking for that security is in the housing market. Uh, you even see this in that kind of expression we have, safe as houses. And I think that's why the current housing crisis is actually hitting such a nerve right now because many people feel that that big thing that is supposed to make them feel secure and settled in life is actually out of reach for them. A recent study found that 70% of younger Australians had housing affordability as their number one concern in life. Uh, Ruth and I were attending auctions towards the end of last year and you could see the hopes and dreams of people just getting dashed as someone else got the house they were hoping for. Because it rattles us when we feel like we do not have a secure place to dwell in. But when, when you really think about it, the dream of owning our own home actually doesn't really give us that deeper security we long for because a home isn't actually immune from being lost in fire or flood or rising interest rates. A home can't actually give us that secure love or acceptance that we so often long for. It can't solve our greatest problem that God says is actually death. A house can't do that. And that is why Psalm 15, I think, is so important to us because it speaks of a better kind of home that provides a much better source of security. 
Psalm 15 speaks of dwelling in God's presence, a place where verse 5 says, you might recall from that reading, that you will never be shaken. See, unlike a, a bricks and mortar home, that deeper and lasting security that God talks about here, well, that stands the test of even death itself. So the way I want us to think about this psalm is by really looking first at the big question it asks and then the big answer that God gives in verses 2 to 5. And then I just want to think about how we actually apply that today. So let's look at the big question that really matters. Now, if you could ask God any question and you knew it would be answered, what would you ask Him? Did the Loch Ness Monster ever really exist, God? really want to know that. Do animals go to heaven, God? Why do bad things seem to happen to good people, God? See, there are many good, big questions you could ask, right? But, but if you only got one, you wouldn't really want to waste it on something of big interest, but of kind of little consequence to your life, right? Like Loch Ness Monster, big interest, doesn't change my life that much. Now, I think you'd want to ask something that was both big interest and big consequence to your life, something that affected your life and well-being in a major way. And I think that's why we should be thankful for the one big question that David asks at the start of this psalm. David, King David, the author here. You see, he asks God the ultimate question that has ultimate implications for each one of us. You see it there in verse 1 of your Bibles. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? At those terms, sanctuary, holy hill, they both refer to the place in which God's presence was said to dwell in the Old Testament. So David's really asking the big question, Lord, who gets the privilege of living with you? Receiving your special love and affection, what sort of person gets to experience that, that true and lasting security of a real relationship with you that extends beyond this life and goes into eternity? I wonder if that question matters to you. If it doesn't, it really should. Now, we recently farewelled a long-standing kinder teacher at our local preschool. Someone had been in the job for 25 years. Uh, our kinder community celebrated her years of service and then encouraged her to make the most of her retirement plan, which was to just travel all around Australia with her husband. And I don't know about you, but when I think of that retirement plan, I just think it kind of captures what the Aussie post-work life dream kind of is, an adventurous and relaxing retirement. But although we kind of like to leave it at that picture, I think we need to consider the kind of what next of all of that. See, what comes after your years of retirement? Where will we dwell when we're finished dwelling in our home our caravan, our retirement village? Will it be in the joyful presence of the God you've come to know and who deeply loves you, or will it be separated from Him? 
facing the awful reality of a life without him and all that is good and secure. See, they are the two, they are the stakes in the question of verse 1 here. And that's why we need the answer. So let's look at it, the answer God gives. So how does God answer that question, who may dwell in your presence? Well, the answer kind of comes to us in general form and then gets unpacked in a few specific ways, as you heard in the children's talk quite wonderfully. And you kind of see the the answer in the first part of verse 2 there. The answer is, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. The person who is fit for God's presence is the one who consistently lives to please God and live according to His way in all they say, do, think, desire. Now, I suspect some of you are already feeling perhaps a little intimidated by that answer. And I'm going to address that in due course. But for now, it's important that we just let the answer God gives to us in Psalm 15 sink in. It is the blameless person who does what is righteous, who gets to live with the righteous God. But what does it mean to do what is righteous? Well, in those verses, two to five, that kind of paints the picture for us. And I've kind of, if I had to give one word that summarizes all those characteristics going on at play in verses two to five, I think the one word is integrity. And so I've kind of broken it up into four categories of integrity. And the first one is integrity in your speech. That's what it means to do what is righteous. To, be, to do what is righteous is to show integrity in your speech. You won't lie, you won't badmouth those around you. Look at what it says in the first part of verse 2 in your Bibles. Who speaks the truth from his heart and who has no slander on his tongue who does his neighbour no wrong, casts no slur on him. See, the righteous person will pause and think before they share any information or make any comment about another person. Uh, These verses aren't telling us we can never speak about any kind of concerning or harmful behaviour of another person. What they're saying is that the righteous person will, in general, Consider the person in question before they speak about him or her. They might even imagine that person listening in and think, I wonder if they would be okay with what I'm about to share. Would they agree with the truth of this statement? Would they be built up by my words or would they be shamed, embarrassed, humiliated by what I'm about to say about them? Uh, I remember a moment in my early 20s when I received a text message that read, hey, how are you going? What was the deal with Chris yesterday? Don't you think he was being so weird around you? Then, after I read it, I received another message immediately after, clearly written, written with some level of haste, that said, please don't read the previous message. <laughs> Obviously, Chris was on the mind, Chris was the one who got the message. Now, honestly, I didn't really take too much offence to that message, and I probably was being weird about something, but I've always thought that message is a bit of a, a little bit of a warning, really, in how we speak and talk about other people, how I do that. 
See, just think about the text messages, the phone calls, the coffee catch-up conversations you've had in the past week. Think about all those moments in the past week where you have talked about someone else. I wonder if you'd be okay sharing a transcript with that person of the conversation. You see, I suspect most of us would probably feel like the person who sent me that text message, totally panicked. Because if we're honest, we sometimes easily embellish aspects of the information. We make rash judgments. We can be quite harsh in our critiques. But you see, the righteous person is careful with how they speak about others. They make sure to do the person in question no wrong, verse 3. And when someone does come up in conversation, they take a moment to decide if at all they'll speak about them, and if they do, they speak the truth, they make no slander, they cast no slur. So that's the first one. Second, to do what is righteous is to show integrity in your allegiances. You see, you don't give your support and honour to those who are vile or evil, but as the verse says, to those who fear the Lord. And you see that there in the first part of verse 4. Sometimes we don't like the language, but it's there for us. Who despises a vile man, but honours those who fear the Lord. Now you might be thinking, well, of course I wouldn't align myself with a vile person. They're vile after all. But there are times in life when you might be tempted to give your support, even your praise and honour, to a person who doesn't deserve it. When you're seeking uh, that promotion or raise, you might give praise or honour to a boss who routinely acts corruptly or inappropriately with other employees. Or think of the world of politics, when you so despise the other political party that you give uncritical praise to the particular leader of your party, even though there is perhaps a sketchy record behind him or her. You see, when the righteous person thinks about who they will align themselves with, they look beyond what, it is in, what is in it for them, and they think critically, not blindly. They don't honour a vile person, but notice they do honour those who fear the Lord. That was the other half of the verse. They will stick with one of God's people, support them, encourage them. Now that, again, might sound like a bit of a no-brainer to us. But again, there will be times when I think that loyalty is put to the test, that honour. I think back to my late high school years, when a lovely Christian girl in my class was getting kind of mocked behind her back in the circle of friends that I had. And I felt that tension in that moment. Would I, despise, would I despise their vile humor and choose to honor this girl who feared the Lord? Or would I offer a quiet chuckle and just hope the moment passes quickly? See, it was actually really hard to honor her in that moment. And maybe you've had similar experiences in your work or circle of friends where there's another believer. But the righteous person does honour those who fear the Lord. But third, to do what is righteous is to show integrity in your commitments, the promises you make. 
So you look at the second part of verse 4 in your Bibles. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change his mind. If you make a commitment, you keep a commitment. That is righteous behavior. And this should really bleed into every aspect of our lives. The righteous spouse will do everything they can to keep fulfilling their promise to love in richer and poorer, sickness and health, better or worse. The righteous employer will say no to going out to a much better social function with friends when they've already said yes to a work function that night. The righteous parent will keep their promise to take their child for a ride on their bike, even when they just want to sit down and have a cuppa for the rest of the yavo. That's what it means to keep an oath even when it hurts, just in the humdrum of life. Now, it's true that we can sometimes make really stupid promises that we can't or shouldn't keep. And thankfully, in those cases, Proverbs chapter 6 does actually say there is room to plead our case with the one we have struck hands with in order to free ourselves from that commitment. But that should not really be the norm because the righteous person will always seek to keep their word and their honour even when it hurts. And fourth, to do what is righteous is to show integrity in your dealings with people, particularly the vulnerable You see that in verse 5, who lends his money without usury or without charging interest and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Now, the Old Testament law didn't forbid charging interest in any circumstance, but it did forbid charging interest to a fellow Israelite who was poor or who had fallen on hard times. You see that in Exodus 22, for example. You were not to exploit such a person but to love them. To charge that person interest would have been to drive them deeper into debt and to financial ruin. And because the righteous person loves his neighbour, well, he's not or she's not going to do that. I notice that this is the same love and concern that drives the second part of verse 5 there, which deals with the realm of justice. See, it was easy... In this day, and as well as our day, for a malicious, well-to-do person to simply pay a bribe in a legal dispute against an innocent person who was poor. The righteous judge or witness in that matter would have the integrity to refuse that bribe, no matter how tempting. I wonder what you would do if your work colleague was unfairly dismissed and looking for some support from you. Would you give them that support? If they wanted a written testimony, would you give them that? What about if the boss offered you their much better paid position in exchange for your support in the matter? I think the righteous person would refuse that offer. So to return to that opening question, who may dwell in God's presence? Well, it's the righteous person, the person whose life is marked by rock-solid integrity in the words they say, the allegiances they make, the commitments they keep, and the dealings they strike. That, according to Psalm 15, is the person who is secure and safe with God. 
who in the words of verse 5 will never be shaken, never forgotten, never doomed, never hopeless. They have the deeper and eternal security that no three-bedroom home can ever provide for us. They have God. Now, I wonder if that answer that God gives in verses 2 to 5 through uh, the author David, I wonder if that unsettles you a little. Because I think for many of us, as I said earlier, it does unsettle us. You see, according to the criteria laid out in this psalm, do you think you would get into the sanctuary of God? Would you say you are a blameless person who consistently does what is righteous? Ironically, I think it's often in the Sunday rush to get to church that we reveal how far short of this standard we fall. Because especially if you've got little kids, you know it's often those moments where we kind of just speak without thinking, we're stressed. You always make us late for church. But verse 3, cast no slur. Oh, I know I promised pancakes, but I just don't want to clean up all that mess right now and we've got to get sorted for church. But the person of verse 4 keeps an oath even when it hurts. Yes, I suspect for all of us, after a bit of honest reflection, we'd kind of start to discover that we're really not the person of Psalm 15. We don't consistently live like that person. And you see, that is why we need not to look to ourselves first and foremost, but to Christ. For as we'll see, he is the great hope that unrighteous people have of dwelling with the righteous God. And that's really the first big takeaway, of two takeaways uh, of this psalm this morning. Um, I wonder if you've ever been to one of those really nice restaurants that still requires the man to wear a suit jacket. Um, I've actually never been to one. That speaks more to our budget than my desire to want to go there. Um, I think they're probably becoming less popular these days as well. But in another era, the only way you could get into a fine dining restaurant as a man was if you were wearing your, I guess, suit jacket. So if you made the blunder on a warm summer's evening of just wearing a kind of nice shirt but no jacket, you'd be stuck. According to the dress code, you wouldn't be allowed in. Unless, of course, the owner of the restaurant solved the problem for you by giving you a jacket on reserve for such embarrassing circumstances. If you've seen Seinfeld, you might remember that scene where Jerry is caught in that circumstance. Now, it's important to note in that circumstance that the owner's not lowering the standard of entry. What he's doing is giving you what you need to come in so that your night is a delight, not a disaster. And I think it's a little bit like that with our entry into God's dwelling, God's kingdom. You see, we stand before God without the righteousness we need. But because He loves us, and actually wants us to come in, 
He clothes us in His righteousness. And you see, that was always the great hope for Israel in the Old Testament, who, like us, did not live according to this Psalm 15 lifestyle and therefore did not warrant entry into God's promised kingdom. As Isaiah prophesied in that reading we heard earlier, he said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And you see, that prophecy finds its fulfillment in the New Testament where Jesus Christ comes and clothes us in His righteousness, making us fit for our dwelling with God. We receive that righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus. You see, Christ is really the truest picture of the man of Psalm 15. Throughout his life, he lived with righteous integrity. He didn't use his words to gossip or slander, but to bless. He didn't attach himself to the powerful of his day for his own purposes, but he honored those who feared the Lord. He kept all his promises and he routinely sought justice and mercy for the poor. Christ alone has the righteousness needed to be in relationship with the living God. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, He promises not only to wash away your sins through His atoning death on the cross, but to clothe you in His righteousness so that you can, be, you can come into God's presence with Him. We are able to be in relationship with God come into his dwelling because we wear the jacket of Christ's righteousness. And that's why Paul in Philippians can speak so confidently about being a citizen of heaven in the here and now. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, if you want to know the lasting security of a relationship with the God who loves you, if you want to know that one day you will be welcomed into the glories of His heaven then you put your faith in Christ Jesus and be clothed in His righteousness. Now, life will continue to knock you around while you're here on earth, but you will never be shaken, not in the ultimate sense, not from your secure position with God. So let's just consider our last point as we come to a close that we are to look to Psalm 15 as the great guide for honouring Christ. See, Christ has clothed us in His righteousness. He's called us into God's kingdom, and there is really nothing better than that. And so it's in response to this that we joyfully live out the holy integrity that we see in Psalm 15. 
I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, that we are to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. I want you to imagine for a moment that King Charles invited you to come and live with him at Buckingham Palace for a week. Imagine he just called you up and said, come on over, Uh, you can soak up the wonders of the royal palace, the queen consort and I will show you all around, and in the evenings, we'll share a meal, we'll play some cards together, we'll enjoy some quality time. Now, whatever your personal views on the king are, you cannot deny that this would be an amazing privilege. You don't deserve to be there, but he's invited you. You are there. See, such an invite with such a person in such a place would surely lead you to respond with honour, respect. Surely leads you to, lead you to please your host. You wouldn't show up an hour late for dinner in the evenings. You wouldn't play loud music late into the night, keeping the king up. You wouldn't secretly blow your nose on the curtains for lack of a tissue. Such things would be unthinkable in the palace. But you see, if you are a Christian, haven't you been called by an infinitely better king into an infinitely better place? with God in His eternal kingdom. Now, if we can grasp the reality of our privileged invite and position, then I think we're in a much better place to live out Psalm 15. Because then we'll think, well, I actually don't want to dishonour such a gracious and loving host in Jesus. I don't want to dishonour Him by slandering or gossiping about one of His children... I'm going to be careful and gracious about how I speak about others. I don't want to dishonor my host by breaking my promises, because I know that doesn't please him. Or following the ways of vile and corrupt people, or using the misfortune of others for my own advantage. Doing those kind of things would be like blowing my nose on the royal curtains. And I don't want to do that, not with my host. So I'll keep my oath even when it hurts. I'll reject the corrupt practices of those I do business with, and I'll work with integrity. I'll be generous and kind to those who are vulnerable and poor in my community. I know I won't be perfect, but because I love Christ, I want to show my thanks to him, and I want to show my thanks to him, I will aim to live out the integrity of Psalm 15. So my challenge to you today is to think of just one area of your life that could be more conformed to the life of Psalm 15. See, think of one relationship that you know has been tarnished by the slander or the rash judgment you've made against someone else. Think about just one work decision that you kind of know is covered in a series of questionable ethics. Think about one promise that you have failed to keep and rectify just one of those things this week so that you might have, so that you might live rightly in the kingdom that you've been called to. 
so that your gracious host, the Lord Jesus, might get the honour he deserves. At the end of last year, my father went home to be with the Lord. He died after a long battle with dementia, and I've been thinking about him a lot as I've been reflecting on Psalm 15, because he wasn't perfect, but as many people said to me as uh, they left the funeral, he was a man of integrity. He was gentle and gracious in his speech. If he made a promise, he'd keep it. He'd love his fellow Christians. He'd look after those who needed help. But you see, that kind of life didn't just happen by accident. My dad was a guy who thought daily about Jesus, who loved him and was transformed by him. The book that dad loved to read over and over again while he could still read was Tim Keller's My Rock, My Refuge, if you've read that, Daily Devotions on the Psalms. You see, because dad knew the righteousness of Christ that it covered him, he longed to live a life pleasing to him. He longed to become ever more like the man of Psalm 15. And in his later years, when he was very confused and often distressed, you know, even then, when he couldn't be that really lovely guy, that man of integrity that everyone remembered him of, See, even then, in an ultimate sense, he was never shaken, was he? As verse 5 says, For God had always, always had him, even in that moment, safe and secure in his care. And when his time came on the 6th of October, God welcomed him into the fullness of what it means to dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord. May we likewise live with that integrity as we look forward to that secure hope. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the great hope that Christ gives us of life with you in your presence forever. Father, transform us by that reality so that we might live in a way in the way of Psalm 15. And in so doing, honour you with our conduct. In Jesus' name, amen.